And just so you know, she is not lying. Every year, it is a war in our house between Thanksgiving and Christmas. It's the moment I hear the word Thanksgiving, I want to put on Christmas music. I am part of the problem, just so you know. But we, we have a um, 334-day ban in our household on Christmas music every year, which I, you know, find a way to break just about every year. It's, it's my sinful nature. What can I say? It's, uh, <laughs> well, I want to open really quick with just a little quick, and I want to put the bug in everyone's ear. Um, I was talking to Bobby before this started, and we are doing the police luncheon again this year. We're going to give you all the details in the emails this week. Right, Bobby? We'll make sure that everyone has the details for that, but I just wanted to put the bug in your ear. Sound good? All right. Well, in the spirit of everything, happy late Thanksgiving. Um, it's the perfect time of year to reflect on what we are thankful for, Right? And let's face it, we have a lot to be thankful for, don't we? Um, I hope you brought your Bibles today, because we're going to be going through a lot of the Bible, and we're going to have some fun, okay? We're going to go through some poetry in there, and you're going to learn a lot about the family of Jesus, because we're in a very special time of year. Um, It's only a few days after Thanksgiving. And I hope you were able to spend it with people that you love, um, whether you went, uh, spent it with your natural family or your spiritual family. I, I truly hope that it was a gift. But I want to start with everyone turning to Psalm 100. It's a psalm of thanksgiving. And it's a short little psalm. It's only five verses long. And it, it's a fun, here's a fun little fact for you. It's the only psalm in the entire collection of psalms to bear the title, A Psalm of Thanksgiving. And it it makes it extra special. And unlike uh, the several previous psalms, Psalm 100, it does not begin with a declaration of God's character or his sovereignty. It begins with the simple and honest and direct exhortation to all of us, everyone on the earth, all nations, to praise God. It's a call to all the nations extending far beyond Israel's borders. So join me as we read the Psalm of Thanksgiving, Psalm 100, where it says, Let the whole earth shout triumphantly to the Lord. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful songs. Acknowledge that the Lord is God. He made us, and we are His. His people, the sheep of His pasture, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. For the Lord is good and his faithful love endures forever. His faithfulness through all generations. You know, thankfulness is such a vital part of our walk with the Lord. Wouldn't you agree? It better be. It's so important that we have a thankful heart for everything that we have been given. Whether, I mean, think about the things that you're thankful for. I remember when I was in elementary school, we had to make a list every year of the things we were thankful for. Right? I hope you did too. And I've often said that if God only gave me Jesus and gave me nothing else on this earth, he's done enough. 
He's done enough for me. That's important to acknowledge that Thanksgiving, it's not the only holiday in this season. Today is also a very special day. It's the first day of an eight-day remembrance. What holiday could I possibly be talking about? Hanukkah. Hanukkah. It's where we remember the Maccabean warriors who fought bravely against the evil king. And I always want to pronounce it one way, but I'm sure it's wrong. That evil king's name was Antiochus IV. And they were told that they had to forsake their God, our God, who had done so much for them. They were told that they had to learn Greek and become loyal citizens of a kingdom, not their own. That's not exactly compatible for a follower follower of our God, is it? And this evil king, he did so many evil things. I'm going to read off a few of them. He stole millions in gold and silver from the temple treasury. He said that possessing a copy of the law was punishable by death. He said circumcising a child was punishable by death. Um, And mothers who did circumcise their children were to be crucified. Um, Under this king, the temple was turned into a house of prostitution. Uh, The great altar of burnt offering was turned into an altar unto the Greek god Zeus. He had pigs sacrificed in the great altar. And nearly 80,000 Jews were killed. And an equal number were sold off as slaves. But there were those who said no more. And they fought a war in response. These warriors were known as the Maccabees. The Maccabee, it's a Hebrew word. Anyone know what the word Maccabee means in Hebrew? Hammer. The hammers. These were like the Jewish special forces. You did not want to mess with these guys. And after their victory, they discovered that they only had enough oil to light for one day. But how many days would it take to make new oil? Eight days. Eight days. And the miracle of Hanukkah happened when the oil lasted for eight days. That oil meant for just one day lasted for eight full days. And the Jews at the time had the assurance that God was with them. And you know, there's no mention of Hanukkah in the entire Old Testament. It's because it happens in between the Testaments. There's 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So, you know, the only mention of Hanukkah in the entire Bible is in the Gospel of John. Specifically, John 10, if you want to turn there. In verse 22, where it talks about the festival of dedication. What is the festival of dedication? Simply put, Hanukkah. And John 10, 22 is where it says, Then the festival of dedication took place in Jerusalem, and it was winter. When Jesus was walking in the temple in Solomon's colonnade, the Jews surrounded him and asked, How long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. And I love this, because Jesus' I love this about Jesus because of the mystery of who he is and who the Father is. Yesterday, in in men's Bible study, we were talking about the mystery of God. 
and the mystery of Jesus and how wonderful it is to ponder. How wonderful it is just to sit down and ponder the things about him that we just might not know yet. And what I'm referring to when I say the mystery of God is that there were things that were once hidden that have been revealed to us. Most of which was revealed to us through the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And there are still things that are hidden to us that will one day be revealed. Isn't that exciting? Things we just don't know yet. And this is, there's such an interesting story. It's found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13. And what makes it so incredible is that it's found right in the center of the Gospel of Matthew. And that might not sound like a very big deal to you or me. But the ancient writing styles, they were different from ours because the climax of a story in the ancient times was found in the middle of a story. For us, when we read a book or watch a movie, where's the climax of the story? It's at the end, right? But that's not the writing style of these guys. But if you could turn with me to Matthew chapter 13, we come to the very center of the gospel. And it's here that the mystery of Jesus is questioned. It's here that a little explanation is needed. And I think Jesus is just having a little fun. Matthew 13, verse 34, where it says, Jesus told the crowds all these things in parables, and he did not tell them anything without a parable. So what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. I will open my mouth in parables. I will declare things kept secret from the foundation of the world. Jesus, why do you have so many parables? Why do you tell so many stories? You know, there's really two reasons why Jesus told parables. Number one, so that people will understand. And number two, so that people wouldn't understand. <laughs> that, that, that might require a little bit to unpack there. Let me ask every Bible-believing follower of Jesus, and I hope it's everyone in here, how easy was it to believe when you first did? Pretty easy for me. I hope it was easy for you. Things were revealed to you. The lights came on. All of a sudden, everything changed. You're excited. Could Jesus have made it easier? I don't think so, to be honest with you, because he's gotten you this far. What about those who didn't believe? Those, they might have a short circuit, and that light switch just never turned the lights on. You know, some people literally see miracles, and they still don't believe. Did Jesus make it easy for them? I, I think so. But then again, I'm on the other side of the equation. You know, the parables were, that, were so that people willing to believe Jesus would understand. And those unwilling to believe Jesus would walk away. It's a fascinating concept, and I believe it's something we're going to understand better when we get to spend eternity with our God. You know, I don't know if I'm going to spend a lot of time on this talking to God about it, but it's something I think we're going to understand a little bit better. And we get to unpack more of the mystery. But you notice in this scripture, in Matthew 13, how Jesus is quoting something from the Old Testament. He quotes the Old Testament an awful lot. He's quoting a psalm. And ironically, it's a very special 
psalm. Do I sound like a broken record? They're all special psalms, aren't they? They're all special. This psalm is really special, okay? It's found right at the climax of the psalms, right in the middle. It's in Psalm 78. Meet me there. And it's the second longest psalm of the Bible, clocking in at 72 verses. I'm not going to read the whole thing today. If you'd like to read it later, you can go home and read it. But as we flip through the psalms, well, let me just ask, who wrote most of the psalms? David. David, we believe, wrote 75 of the psalms, half of the psalms. David, Israel's greatest king. But if I were to ask you, who wrote the second most psalms? I heard Solomon. Solomon probably wrote about five. Okay? I heard Hezekiah. I'm not sure. I'm not, oh, I, know, I know Hezekiah is not number two. I'm not sure how many he wrote. Not Ezra. Oh, it's Mark. Mark's over there. Mark's heckling over there. Yes. <laughs> we know Moses wrote one, possibly two. We know about 45 of them are anonymous. We know the sons of Korah wrote 10 or 11. But there's a guy who wrote 12 psalms. He wrote the second highest number of psalms, and his name is Asaph. Has anyone ever heard of Asaph? Anyone, when you were picking out names for your kids, did you say, well, let's call, let's call him Asaph? You know, I, I got a feel for Asaph. You know, he, he did a lot of work. He doesn't get a lot of credit. You know, he was a Levite, a priest, and like his king David, he was a poet. He was a musician, and he was someone who just loved God. He wrote 12 psalms. Most of them are grouped together right in the center of the book of Psalms. And it's important to know that the book of Psalms, when you read it, it's not just some haphazard collection of poetry that was just thrown together. You know, that just randomly thrown together. It's designed to be a narrative and a progression you know, the psalms at the beginning, they're more of a lament, while the psalms at the end are more of a praise. And our friend Asaph, he lands in the dead center of the book, right at the climax. So let's read the first few verses of Psalm 78. It says, a masculine of Asaph. Masculine is likely a song. So if Eddie wants to get on keyboards, we can sing this one. I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. It says, I know you would do it too. <laughs> it says, my people, hear my instruction. Listen to the words from my mouth. I will declare wise sayings. I will speak mysteries from the past, things we have heard and known, and that our ancestors have passed down to us. We will not hide them from their children, but will tell a future generation the praiseworthy acts of the Lord, his might and the wondrous works he has performed. It's wonderful. You know, when we cross the bridge from the Old Testament to the New Testament, so much of this mystery is solved. So much of it. We see the fulfillment of so many promises. We see the words of prophets, the songs of poets coming into alignment with God's will. And we see imperfect people writing stories that will show us the indomitable grace of our God. 
And there's plenty of mystery left. And the biggest mystery of them all that I find myself asking, and I know a lot of you have asked God as well, are two words. Why me? Have you ever asked God that question? Why, in your wisdom, would you ever choose me? Sometimes that's a safe place to be because you know where you stand with God. It's all up to him. But why does someone like me get to enjoy this? What a mystery that God wants us in his family. And what a mystery that Psalm 100, the psalm we began with, it extends beyond Israel and spreads out over all of the nations. And that includes us. This gospel isn't just for the Jews. It's for all of us. It's why the Bible begins with the whole of human history with a man and woman named Adam and Eve. And it doesn't start with Abraham because we're all included in it. And Jesus chose specific people to write about him. Today, I want to show you a few things like I said, this is the fun stuff for me. My wife has been laughing at me all week because I can't stop talking about it. You know, I, I like to use the term, I geek out over this stuff. <laughs> Turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Literally, the first page of the New Testament. Literally, the beginning of the story of Jesus. It's the culmination of everything the reader has already read in the Old Testament. You know you have to read the Old Testament before you read the New Testament, right? Good. I hope you all do. But it's a lot of fun when you put it through the lens of a man like Matthew. And here's the thing. And Jessica said this to me this morning. God is in a good mood here. God's in a good mood in Matthew chapter 1. He is going to have some fun. He's having fun when he begins the story of Jesus. And usually, when we start with the story of Jesus' birth, every December or the end of November, we like to start with a manger. We like to start maybe halfway through Matthew chapter 1, or maybe even Luke chapter 2 or 3. But we're going to start in Matthew chapter 1, because we believe the whole Bible is inspired. And it's all worth reading. Now, the first practical question, what is Matthew's profession? He's a tax collector. He deals with a lot of numbers. So what does he start with? Numbers. He starts with a lot of numbers. He's going to take the time to number all of the people, starting with Abraham, all the way down to Jesus to make a beautiful point. And if you've ever sat down and taken the time to read the book of Matthew, you had to start here. And maybe you just kind of skimmed through it. A lot of names, some of which you can't pronounce, and that's it. Right? And then you ask yourself, why? Why does God start with a list of 42 men and their wives? Why? Well, we're going to dive in. Hopefully by the end you'll understand the importance of this scripture. Because our fathers are so important. 
They really are. And while Jesus has a heavenly father like the rest of us, he also had an earthly father, a man by the name of Joseph. And who is Matthew writing to, by the way? The Jews. He's writing to the Jews in a style that he is used to and a style that they will understand best. He needs the reader to know where this Joseph came from. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Good, we start with the easy stuff. Right? All the way back in Genesis, God made his promise to Abraham, and the reader is reminded of the story of Abraham and how he was promised a son. And Abraham immediately said, yeah, God, no problem. I got this. Right? Not at all. Not at all. Of course, he doubted. He laughed. But in time, Abraham, when he and his wife Sarah had their son, Abraham becomes a giant man of faith. And God used him. Verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And again, these are stories that we should all know by heart, right? Certainly stories that the Jews would have known by heart. Judah, who was a part of the conspiracy to sell his brother Joseph into slavery. And somehow Judah came out all right and finds himself in the line of Jesus. In fact, the very word Judah is where we get the word Judaism or the Jews. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the, farmer, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, sounds tasty, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse. And all of a sudden, we have these women in, in here. Women are included in this Uh, genealogy, Rahab, a prostitute who helped the Israelites take the city of Jericho, and Ruth, the widow, who chose to be loyal to her mother-in-law, and as a result, God grafted her in to his family. Verse 6, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Oops. Maybe we should ignore that and move on, right? Matthew doesn't want you to ignore that and move on. He wants you to know what happened. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. And all these king's stories are in the New Testament. Some are good, some are bad. Some are the best of the best, some are the worst of the worst. But something very peculiar happens here with the word Asa, and you will not find it in your Bible because your Bible was translated into English, unfortunately. Okay, I have a copy of a Greek Bible. Um, I actually left it at home, so you'll have to wait till next week for me to show you if you want. But the earliest copies of the Greek New Testament, the name Asa is spelled wrong. Some say intentionally it was spelled wrong. Did you know that? Probably not. I've read the Bible in English all my life. And you know what? It's spelled wrong in the next verse, too. Asa. 
If you read it in the original text, and the text that it was copied into for centuries after, the name Asa is spelled with an extra letter at the end of the name, making his name Asaph. Asaph. Now, that doesn't make any sense, does it? I mean, to you and me, we'd get out an eraser and just say, well, boy, Matthew really messed that up. In 2021, United States, our culture wouldn't tolerate something like that, would it? Matthew here is taking some poetic license. He's showing us that our Messiah reigns. He's the fulfillment of Abraham, the heir of David, and he lords over even the simple psalm-writing priests like Asaph, who wrote Psalm 78, the very psalm we read today. Matthew, can you do that? Can you even do that? Yes, he can. And it's unfortunate that our translators decided to make the correction because now we've lost it in our language. But we continue in verse 8, though, where it says, Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, who did not write the second most Psalms, Mark, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah. And we pause again because we have another misspelling here for some reason. And Amon is just some obscure king in the Old Testament. And he reigned for maybe two years. His father was the worst king of Judah, and his son was one of the best. But Matthew chooses to alter his name too. It isn't spelled Ammon. It's spelled Amos, the name of a prophet. And the same principle applies here. He's the fulfillment of of Abraham, David, Asaph, and he is also the fulfillment of the prophets like Amos. And Amos was such a lowly man. He was told by many false prophets that he had no business speaking for God. What was Amos's career, by the way? Anyone know? He was a fig farmer, and he was a shepherd. And you don't have to turn here, but In Amos 17, Amos is confronted by one of these false prophets. It says, Amos answered Amaziah, and he says, I was not a prophet or the son of a prophet. Rather, I was a herdsman, and I took care of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock and said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Jesus is nothing short of a great prophet, isn't he? Was he rejected by the religious community of the day? You better believe it. And Jesus is greater and more humble than Amos, and he lords over the prophets as well. Can anyone even do this in the Bible? Are you allowed to misspell things? And I believe so if it proves a point. Plus, bonus, I think it really annoyed the religious community at the time and the Pharisees. You can't misspell that. I think Matthew enjoyed that. Verse 11. Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. Hey, we're two-thirds of the way through. Can we make it all the way? What do you say? Most of these next names you probably don't even know. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiad. Abiad, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. 
Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Nathan. Nathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. Wow, yeah. The whole Old Testament summed up with the names of 42 men. You know what I love about this genealogy? Jessica reminded me of this this morning. This is the stuff that God delights in. God delights. This is the stuff that makes him so happy. We start with Abraham. We've already acknowledged Abraham was not a perfect man, was he? He was a great man. He doubted. And it took him years, years to finally believe that a son was coming. And God delighted in using Abraham. How about Rahab? Talk about a sinful past. You look at it, so many people out in the world have such horrendous stories. So many people out there have sinned and have continued to sin, and they might say to themselves, you know what, God could never possibly use me to do anything. I have sinned so greatly. These people are building their testimonies to Jesus, as far as I'm concerned. And you know what, God delighted in using Rahab. It delighted him. How about Ruth? She was an outsider. She was born a Moabite. She's not even descended from Abraham. You know, how many outsiders are outside of these walls right now that might be thinking to themselves, you know, I'm not part of God's kingdom. He could never use me. You know, it's our job to make sure that they know God can certainly use them. You know why? Because he used Ruth. And not only did he use Ruth, He delighted in it. He delighted in the idea to use a woman like Ruth. How about David? A perfect man? Not at all. I feel like we spent the whole summer talking about David's greatest sin. Boy, did David mess up. He was powerful. And he committed one of the most egregious sins of the Old Testament. How many people out there do you think are big, rich, and powerful, and they're hiding things? And they don't know that there's a God that they can turn to. Can we be the ones to let them know that? Can we be the ones to change kingdoms in that way? Because not only did God use David, he delighted in it. He wanted to use a man like David. And what can I say about all of these imperfect kings that God used? All of these imperfect men are all in the line of Jesus. Manasseh, a man so terrible, I don't even want to share the things that he did. The last 10 years of his life, he devoted his life to God. And God used him. And then we have the people you've probably never heard of. Azor, Zadok, Achim, 
Abiad, Eleazar. You know anything about those guys? How about the people out there that are saying, I'm just a nobody. God can't use me. Why would God ever use someone like me who's never done anything, never amounted to anything, that no one's probably ever going to hear of? God used these people the same way that he can use people out there that have such a lowly view of themselves. Can we be the ones to let them know that God can use them too? Trivia question for you. Who had the most dreams of anyone else in the New Testament? You know, Nate? Not Peter. Good guess. Not Peter. Anyone know? Not Paul. It's a, it's a person who has... Nope. Not, it's someone who has no... New Testament. Someone who has no line of dialogue in the entire Bible. Had more dreams than anyone else in the New Testament. How about I just tell you? <laughs> Joseph. Joseph had more dreams than anyone else in the New Testament. And you know what? Joseph, the son of who, according to the New Testament? The son of Jacob. And who's known as the dreamer in the Old Testament? Joseph, the son of Jacob. I think Matthew had more fun writing this genealogy down than you'll ever know, than we'll ever know. Because I think he wanted everyone to know just how delighted God is to not only use you, but use you in the way that he's used others before. To prove that point. You know, when I was thinking of what I wanted to call this sermon, I knew I was going to be talking about the genealogy. And I just kept coming up with this Arnold Schwarzenegger quote from, um, from the 90s. Who is your daddy and what does he do? From an old movie. <laughs> and I ask you, who, and I'm not going to say with an Austrian accent, but <laughs> who is your daddy and what does he do? <laughs> your daddy, your Abba Father, is the creator of the heavens and the earth. And he delights. He delights to use us all, to use you all in his kingdom. The way Matthew ends, he says, Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile of Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. And we could continue to unpack this well into the afternoon because I have barely touched on, I haven't even talked about Luke's genealogy and why it's different. I don't know if I'm going to today. I probably won't. <laughs> but there's so much to unpack here. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful for so many things. And I'm glad we have one day of the year to remember that called Thanksgiving. We should be doing it 365 days a year, right? with a thankful heart to our God. And I'm glad that we have holidays like Hanukkah that remember and honor the past and the things that brave men and women have done before us. But you know, there's another holiday coming up that I just really get excited about, and it's not because of the presents. 
although it helps. It's Christmas. Christmas is upon us. It's something to celebrate. It's something to, you know, the Bible doesn't say a word on how to celebrate Christmas. Did you ever notice that? Gives us plenty of ways to celebrate the Passover, holidays. There's not a word about how to celebrate Christmas in the New Testament. So how do we celebrate? We celebrate by praising him, by thanking him. Eddie, could you get on the keyboards? By thanking him for what he did, for sending his son to this earth and using imperfect people like Abraham and Rahab and Ruth and David and Manasseh and Azor and Zadok and Achim and Matthew and for using each and every one of us and the things that we can accomplish in his kingdom through him. So I invite everyone today to have a spirit of thankfulness in this season. You know, I started with that joke that we have the great Thanksgiving Christmas war every year in our house. I'm going to let Thanksgiving win this year because I don't want my thankfulness to my God to ever, ever end. Sound good? So anyone in here, if you're feeling like God can't use you, if you're feeling like you've led a sinful past, if you feel like you're an outsider, maybe you're keeping some sins hidden. Maybe you feel like you're just obscure and a nobody. God can and will use you. And if that's you today, we have some people that would love to pray with you once we close. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for all of us right now. So if you could bow your heads. Heavenly Father, I thank you for each and every person in here. I thank you for the stories of your word, the stories that the Bible has for us, the people that we might be able to relate to, and the fact that you can use them all, which means that you can use us all. God, you are so good to us. So we ask for new revelation in this season this year, in this Christmas season. But let us not forget the thankfulness that Psalm 100 tells us to have. God, I thank you for the miracles we're going to see this year. I thank you for the family members that we are going to see come to you. I thank you for your presence in our lives. That it's something that it continue, not just in the month of December, but throughout the year. God, we thank you for a move of your Holy Spirit in our lives. And it's in the mighty name of Jesus that we pray. And everyone said, Amen.